0: IROC space radio. Roger. Restart. Three, two, one. Mark. It's now time for the space revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Hey there, spacers. This is Rick Tomlinson. You are tuned into the space revolution here on IROC space radio. We're part of the iHeartRadio radio network family. And, uh, Today we have an interesting guest, an old friend, um, and uh, he's not representing a company or anything like that. Um, I'm I'm bringing him on because I consider him to be a top expert in uh, the realm of space policy. And uh, although we don't always agree on everything, uh, we come from the same place and we have the same goals. So his name is Aaron Osterley, and um, he's been a policy activist 10 years or more. Um, Aaron is somebody you don't see a lot of in public. Um, he is, uh, working behind the scenes, getting stuff done, as they say. And, uh, that's very impressive to me. Um, he's the kind of guy who, and has sort of prepared, um, statements, policy statements, and, uh, uh all kinds of things for all kinds of organizations. Uh, you know, uh, and, and, and Congress people and things like that. He works behind the scenes, uh, and so you see the work, but you maybe don't realize who's done the work. Um, he helped draft the Space Exploration Development and Settlement Bill um, uh, you know, that went through the House and uh, Senate, and it actually influenced a lot of other uh, legislation that followed it. Um, and uh, he's been a board member of the Space Frontier Foundation, for many, many years. Uh, the organization I started back in the 20th, as we like to say, uh, he, he graduated university of Michigan, uh, aerospace engineering sp- and a minor in science technology and society. And he's currently pursuing a grad degree at space studies, at the university of North Dakota. Um, and just really, a really good friend. So uh, welcome Aaron.
1: Thanks Rick. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, it's always it's always good to talk to you you keep you keep you keep me it's one of those things that you keep your head your head, your head up at the top and i try I try to make sure that we 're not anchored down too much
0: <laughs> okay that's a good way to put it um yeah, we always have fun conversations um, uh, the worst thing I can say about Aaron is that he's a good listener um, which uh, for somebody like me who likes feedback and he's he's just a very quiet listener, um, which means he's thinking, which terrifies me. Um so Aaron um look we're we're in a moment of transition you you can tell by the name of the show you know uh you've been a you've been an integral part of this the, the space revolution and uh um i guess i guess the first thing i want to ask you before we get into some specific policies and topics and things like that is um what is the core thing in front of you right now what is the main thing that you are focused on right now so i am currently rebuilding and
1: helping to strengthen the uh, Space Frontier Foundation's policy team. Um, we have a lot of old hats, we have some new hats, and I was brought back in to help because I, I was in for a while and then, I, and then I stepped back because they were doing a lot of a lot of other things and I and I wanted to focus on some other things. They asked me to come back and help step help that up and I've been focused on, on on that. And so we are reestablishing kind of issues we have, issues we want to focus on, policy, policies we want to see enacted, that kind of a thing. We're one of our, a lot, there's a lot of reactivity in terms of what we do because it's just how policy is made in terms of. This president will put out a statement or the chair of the science committee will put out a statement or there will be a draft bill and then we have to react to it. So there's a lot of reaction to various things. One of our big things that we're trying to see enacted is a national strategy for space solar power. We see a lot of potential in space solar power that's not being addressed. And so we're... You know, we're talking to the National Space Council people. We talked to NASA people. Where there's a report coming out from NASA in the near future. I, I stress that in quotes because of how government work it just takes time. They were hoping to have it out in October, as uh, my understanding, and then it got delayed, and then it got delayed again, and then it got delayed again. So you know, it's just how government works, and you have to work with the system as opposed to always trying to fight against the system it doesn't always work when you're fighting with, against the system but if you can, if you can make those turns very carefully you get much more uh, reaction that you want to see happen.
0: Can you explain that for a second? what do you mean make those turns very tragic? think of it
1: think of it a lot like a you know a battleship or an aircraft carrier or a big cruise ship. you don't turn on a dime it never will. It just the momentum is too much. the The bureaucratic inertia of trying to change government policy is such that you have to understand, you know, who's president, who's chairman, who's who's the political actors, who are the non political actors, how are they influencing the various uh, the various aspects of policy. Where do they want to go? How many how many more years till an election is coming up? All of those things make for a very slow change at times. There are there are times when change happens quickly, but it's usually like a big tragedy or something horrific has happened. Loss of the space shuttle, declaration of war, those kind of things will change things quickly. But generally, it's slow. So you have to find the points of inflection where you can say, okay. Let's go in and talk to this congressman or that, that senator or that policymaker and get them to understand why we're talking about this issue and how it can impact uh, whatever it is we're talking about.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you find that um, when you're talking to these people, and I'm sure it's a spectrum, I guess, but um, do you have to play to their... Specific self-interest, like uh, you know, you've got a factory in your district, or, um, or do you find them operating at a, uh, a a different level, maybe you know, sort of a national level? Is it? Or is it, it, it
1: varies. It very. I mean, it, it really does vary depending on the policymaker you're talking to. If you're talking to a congressman, I've I've literally been in a room with a Congress with a congressman staffer, and we were presenting our various issues and he, and he literally looks at one of the things that we had was a dot was a letter written by a bunch of uh, companies and he literally looks at it and he goes, okay, this isn't my state. This isn't my state. This isn't my state. Okay. Okay. I have a constituent interest. Okay, great. I'll respond to this. And that was literally his response. It was like, I just want to see my constituent interest." On the other hand, you'll have people who are very, Esoteric. They they see a big picture. They see a vision. They have an idea behind them. They have a strategy behind them. Um, And those people, you can engage with them really, in some ways, really beautifully. But if you're on the opposite, if you're on opposing sides, it's harder to do that. Uh, A great example, if I can, if I can give this, this is a few years old. But there was a push to federalize certain lawsuits. If there was a if there was an accident involving a space spacecraft company, and the response was from the trial lawyers was no, we don't want to do that because trial lawyers do not like to see these things these kind of things federalized for a variety of reasons. And there was a very esoteric reason, which goes back to their philosophical thing related to how they approach policy making, not necessarily how they approach space issues, but.
0: Policy making. so yeah obviously the lawyers didn't like it because if it's murky they get a lot of good lawsuits and such um, um i worked on the state level here in texas as you know um so but you're so in some cases it's completely transactional you you go in the senator the congressperson's like okay i got this company in my district and uh you know oh good it's gonna help them right um, or or, or they've signed this letter. Oh, that means my some of these people who maybe donate to me or maybe will donate to me care about this topic. And then you're saying others are very sort of uh, they have their own vision. They have their own. They're driven by an agenda that is a macro agenda. So which one of the two is easiest? The easiest is when they agree with you on a macro
1: level. Mm. And then you don't have to do a lot of convincing because it's just like, hey, we're here to talk about. You know space solar power and we see this as a, as a as a green tech and they'll love it for whatever reason on the other hand if they're I think like it's kind of it's kind of like the, the transactional ones are are the mid mid-tier one it, it, the easiest is when they is when they agree with you and have a big picture vision mid-tier is when they're completely transactional and you just have to approach it from a transactional issues do they care about this issue or can you find somebody in their district who cares about this issue Um, the, the worst is when they're, they have a vision, but they're opposed to you. Um, in that situation, you're just kind of like, what the hell do I do? Because you have these, you you have, you, you have a real ideology behind you and staffers or congressmen are, very focused on their vision, and if their vision doesn't match with your vision it's you know it,
0: it,
1: it, it it's a, it's a fight
0: so it's kind of like they've got their brand they've got their uh and everybody in their staff they all share the the boss's brand, and as we know it's the staffers um who get things done oh yes so like if if you're gonna go you're gonna go walk into Bernie Sanders' office right. I'll give you a couple of challenging ones. What what, what would you say to Bernie Sanders in terms of space solar power? I would say that if you
1: regard climate change as one of the quintessential crises of our times, which I think he does, I do, I know you do, um, then everybody has to pull their weight. Every agency should be putting in their two cents on how to help climate change. And that includes... Organizations like NASA, like Space Force, and this is a way they can do their share without losing sight of what other agencies and organizations want to do. We don't want to have a, I mean, again, going back to my fundamentals, if climate change is a major crisis that we have to address, then you don't want to fight between space solar power and ground solar or space solar power and fusion or any of that kind of stuff. You want an, all of the, you want to bring everybody to the table and everybody brings their A game. You just can't afford to have anything else. And so that would be my, my pitch to to somebody like a Bernie Sanders.
0: So let's say I, I'm Bernie. I, I won't do the voice. I can't do the voice, whatever. Uh, but uh, whatever, you know, whatever. Anyway. Um. So I'm Bernie and I'm like, well, You know, I I really have a problem with uh, this whole uh, commercial space thing because it's, you know, it's these rich guys, and uh, these billionaires, and, you know, they should be giving their money away. And um, they're going to be the guys who benefit, you know, they're the ones trying to leave the planet. And uh, so why should I support space solar power, especially, you know, we got, uh, you know, we just had this breakthrough with fusion, um, you know, so why why should I support that, you know? Um, What do you say to somebody like that? And and I, just to be just to be clear, I think that when he says that he's coming from a place, and those are rationales that he's throwing at you. So how do you dance with?
1: I, th- I think it's one of those things. You come back to the issue of, of again: is this a, is this a how much money are you going to spend on space? If you if you if you if you are if you if, 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 if you truly believe that you shouldn't be spending any money on space, then we're at a standstill. But if you're, if your attitude is we're going to spend some amount of money on space and it's going to be X billion dollars, then it should be solving major critical issues. Example being, uh, you know, climate change. And yes, it's great that we can do all this observation stuff from space and we should do more of that. But by the same token, we can do more. We should do more. If we're not doing, if we're not bringing our gay game, to to this issue, then, you know, we're not trying. And in terms of the issue of commercialization versus versus government uh, uh, institutions, what you want is you want effective policy strategies. And you have to have methods and ways to approach that. And commercialization is not the same thing as privatization. That's one of the key things that I always come back to. People equate the two, but they 're not the same they're very fundamentally different issues and privatization is very it, it, it's something that a lot of liberals myself included sometimes have a problem with because it it you know it takes it, it approaches everything as a net zero a net zero sum game, and that is a dangerous attitude in my in a lot of our opinions at least my opinion i, I should say our opinion because i'm not speaking for anybody but myself um but i see i i see that attitude reflected whereas commercialization is a it's about taking something and finding a broader use for it that everybody can take part in whether it's you know whether it's you know that's what we did with the internet now we get we have a lot of problems with the internet in terms of like social media and so forth But fundamentally, we're never going to get rid of the internet because it does it does too much for too many people, and we commercialized it in a manner that allowed for everybody to approach the issue from an attitude of I can take a part of I can be a part of this, and that was very powerful. That's a very powerful world when the individual can can approach something and say I am part of this, as opposed to a company. It's you know so. That's kind of how I would approach something like a Bernie Sanders.
0: Okay. Very interesting. Uh, I like the little case study thing here. So into the policy stuff here, uh, continuing on that. We were just talking about space solar power. Um, I, I want to specifically ask you about this one, though, because it does concern me. Um, as as you know, we both know, space solar power has been sort of the uh, the unicorn of the space field for decades for the activist side of things. Um, and um, for those of you who don't know what space solar power is, it's basically the collection of sunlight in space, like you would do on your roof if you have a solar power um, collector, and then it's converted into um, radio waves or microwaves, but, uh, and they're beamed down to the earth and, and translated back into electrical signals and sent to power your home. Uh, the sun shines 24 hours a day in space. You can build as big as you want. So there's a lot of arguments for it. One of the reasons that those who want to see human communities in space have grabbed onto it is because it's a mega project. And it's the kind of project that would employ a lot of people. It would involve a lot of infrastructure development, a lot of industrial development. And that is critical to building an economy in space. So that's, that's one reason that um, space people get so excited about. Some space people get so excited about space flow power. Um, the challenge now, though, you know, there's this, these recent uh, discussions of, of fusion energy. Um, I wrote on LinkedIn or somewhere, I, I was talking about the idea that, you know, you're, it's going to be on the same timeline, which By the way, both space solar power and fusion energy have been characterized over the last few decades of being always 10 years away. But now both of them, both of them may be happening within 10 years. It's quite conceivable. They could both come online. Um, It would seem that fusion energy would put space solar power potentially out of business. But... Interestingly, for those of us who want to see human communities in space, fusion energy helps enable the rapid expansion of humanity into the solar system all by itself because it lowers the cost of creating energy in space. It's a whole bunch of different things. You can use it for vehicle power, propulsion, things like that. How do you drive those two? How do you, is space solar power still worth pushing for at a period, in a period where we think we might have fusion? I'll put it that way.
1: I think that the short answer is it's still worth pushing for because we we have a theoretical breakthrough in fusion. We do not have commercial fusion. There's a huge difference between commercial fusion and the the breakthrough we've had. Um, now, I'm excited about fusion because for a variety of reasons, you've listed a whole bunch of good reasons to be excited about fusion right now. but from my perspective, we don't have. The, solu- the solution state that we absolutely need from one or the other. And this is why I go back to when you talk to policymakers who are of the, of the mindset that climate change is real and you have to address it or, or, or even inter- just energy independence and you have to address it. You want all of the above. You want everybody bringing their a game. Why not have NASA be a part of that? Why not have Space Force be a part of that? Why not have the, uh, the Office of Space Commerce be a part of that. That is part of That is part of how we address that. And to a certain degree also, that is kind of the core of America on some level, because it's about the idea of everybody trying to bring their A game. And we don't just assume a, a specific solution state and yay verily go forward with that and we'll hammer everybody into shape.
0: I think, too, it's, it's, I guess it's important to kind of be supportive of the space solar power thing. That right? You say that there's a solution set or a solution state here. Um, for fusion, the solution state would be scaling from an experiment that has produced a little more energy coming out than a little more energy coming in to the ability to actually build reactors. And, and not just the ability, actually demonstrating them, having them online, operating them. Uh, And then scaling that to where you could put them out into society and, you know, and eventually, I guess, um, you know, you you end up with a a DeLorean that's got a fusion energy, uh, fusion engine in the back. Okay. Um, Space solar power, it's a different solution set in that we know it works. It's been demonstrated. There's been power beamed from point to point. We know all of the concepts work. The solar part of it works, the beaming works, the collection works, the distribution works. So it's merely the mechanics of putting that system together, the key element of which is low-cost transportation to space, um, which then would enable it hugely. It's not the only element of it, but that would enable it. Um, And so it's a different thing. One of them is going from, because you made this point, I'm just clarifying the point you made earlier. Um, you're going from this theoretical, you move slightly slightly north of theoretical to the point where you're like, okay, we're getting energy out. Now we have to do all the other steps to get to the point of making it commercial. Space solar power is missing one piece and that is low cost transportation to space.
1: Well, on the other side of this coin is, is also how do you, how do you take the the idea of either of these two pro- projects to solve climate change, and turn them into a system that is commercialized? And that means you have to approach them from a regulatory standpoint. You have to approach them from a safety standpoint. You have to approach them from you know uh, an economic standpoint, which we've adre- which we've already you've mentioned already, and. All those things get really complicated really fast. It's easy to to focus on kind of to assume there's one single shot solution state, but like a fundamental question that has not been addressed in the world of space solar power is how do you regulate it? There is a lot of different ideas out there about how you can regulate it. I have my own personal opinions on on that.
0: What, What do you mean by regulation?
1: So So, I'm trying to remember, I don't remember exactly where it stands, but there's, there's, there's laws that basically say that the government has to, has to assure a certain amount of safety on these, on these issues. You can't beam, you know, the short version is you can't have death rays shooting down at the ground or else you can't buy insurance and you can't get all those kind of things going on. Now, space solar power, I have stipulated this or uh, many of my other friends will get mad at me. Space solar power beaming is not a death ray, um, and most and so it's not a death ray. But the point is, is you still have to demonstrate that it's not it's not going to de- hurt people that birds can fly through it and ca- and without problems. Same thing applies actually to to nuclear power. We haven't built a nuclear power plant in ye- in decades. So to build a new a new nuclear power plant. Even a fusion power plant, we have to we have to assume a certain amount of regulatory infrastructure that people are not really ready for. So this issue of 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 solving the solving the climate crisis with whether it's fusion power, whether it's whether it's space solar power, whether it's, you know, anything that is big big industry power we'll put it that way because like it's one thing to have solar powers on on your personal roof it's a whole different pole game when you start talking about about factories and malls and you know giant multi acre facilities that just need a lot of power and our power power suck areas you need you need industrial scale power there and realistically Space solar power and fusion power, in my mind, are the real solutions for those kind of activities. So you have to address these issues on a multi multi phase front. Whether uh, you know you have to you have to make sure the tech works. You have to make sure that the regulatory infrastructure is there. You have to make sure that you can get buy insurance for these things. I mean, crap happens where something you know it all falls apart. Three Mile Island happened. You know, we've had satellites crash into each other and that kind of a thing. All these things require insurance. And, you know, it goes on and on and on. Ultimately, you have to address it in a multi phase fashion where you can, you can handle all of these different issues.
0: So, in terms of uh, a space policy conversation, how would you differentiate that whole list of, of other, other things that you just talked about, the regulations and all of that, from the policy? What would the policy look like that enables this to happen versus all of these other things? The policy. So my standpoint, my
1: starting point is an idea that uh, Beyond Earth Institute came up with um, last year, I want to say, where they, they said we need a national strategy on space solar power. You want to bring in the Department of Energy. You want to bring in. The office of space commerce you want to bring in the faa you want to bring in because faa i should stipulate for those who don't know the federal aviation administration regulates launch and reentry under the office of space uh off office of space transportation um you want to bring in nasa obviously you want to bring in space force and have kind of a start because all these agencies tend to stovepipe from each other they tend to not talk to each other Generally, unless you have somebody saying, yes, you will talk to each other. Yes, you will build an organization that engages with other agencies. They like to, they like to, they, we call it stovepiping. And a lot of these agencies just like the stovepipe. And it's just, that's not necessarily a good or bad. It's it's generally seen as a bad thing, but it's not necessarily an evil thing. I should stipulate that up front because it's, it's just kind of the way bureaucracy develops and you, and you have to accept that bureaucracy develops in a certain way. And so by Starting point of saying all these organizations, you need to start talking to each other about how to make space solar power a priority in your agency. Then you can start saying, OK, what are the technical hurdles we have to handle? And you go and address those. What are the regulatory hurdles we have to handle? And you go and address those. What are the what are the legal issues that meaning may, may updating that require congressional action? Go address those all the and that that's kind of where i would start from is is let's have this national strategy on 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 space solar power and then engage the different agencies bring them together and and have them start talking to each other May, maybe ideally having an a, uh, an entity within each agency that is responsible for space solar power and that's a starting point just as a as, as, a, as, a, as a beginning of stage of Okay, well, we're starting to think about how to do regulation and who you know one of the big fights going on right now that is related to this is who is the ultimate oversight entity of space activity. Right now there is three different agencies that handle regulation in space. FAA the FAA handles launch and re-entries. The Office of Space Commerce handles um, remote sensing issues and FC- and the FCC handles uh, communication satellites. There is a desire to have one entity be the overall arching for different, for non-traditional, what they call non-traditional space com- commerce activities. So things like space mining, space solar power satellites, space tourism, on, on orbit servicing those kind of things and there's a big fight about who should have that authority and you know it's one of those things of like if you have the agencies talking to each other you're more likely to come to an agreement whether that whether that will happen or not is an open question there's a i know there's a push within the biden administration and i know they did something just prior to christmas and unfortunately i didn't follow it because it was christmas time and i I have, as you know, Rick, I have two twins that are four 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 and a half years old, and they kept me very busy. So I haven't actually followed that latest development. But there's this push to kind of address these issues and make regulation such that, I should say regulation and policy, such that it can address this issue of, uh, you know, on-orbit activity that is is non-traditional, non-traditional space activity.
0: Got it, got it. So the policy is basically the overarching thrust of a government to get something done. And then within that is the strategies, the regulations, the changing of the infrastructure, all of those yeah. things. The policy is the top level. Um,
1: I have friends who would disagree with me on, on, on how, how that's characterized, but I would agree with that characterization.
0: Okay, good. Well, as long as I'm saying it, it's correct. So, Aaron, um, I'm going to run through a couple of different things, random. uh, I sent you a list way too late, right before the show. So, I'm not going to expect you to give me an essay on each one. Um, When it comes to an overarching policy, what do you think the U.S. government's policy should be on orbital debris? People have talked about trashing the solar system and, you know, we have to... um, we have to, uh, you know, take care of, make sure that George Clooney and, you know, movie stars in space don't get hit by debris. How do we do that? So
1: orbital debris is one of those things that's really complicated. And we have a lot of stuff up there. It's an, it's invariably a – it suffers from the problem of being that you have to deal with a lot of different countries – that are not necessarily feeling buddy buddy towards each other and yes the big ones being right now america and russia um and china's in there as well too but Russia's the bigger one frankly and so you know how do how you address those issues is really complicated and i don't have a good answer for you it's i'm not focused on the issue of overall debris but it's it's a big problem I personally think that you have to involve some amount of, of you know, government or international government, intergovernmental agencies that come together and focus on how to address it in a fashion that takes you know we're going to see whether it's like a system of of of, of for, a for profit system that takes down trash and brings it brings it down or a recycling system or something like that one of the interesting ideas i've heard is that you could have it all go towards one of the LaGrange, lagrange points and have it kind of build up there and then you can just go back go to that point and start recycling stuff from there and thus you don't have it kind of everywhere you have it one centralized location i don't know whether that's viable or not that's a technical solution that i don't have a good answer on um i always like to say i'm a policy guy not a not really a rocket scientist anymore because i, I you want me around when you're when, when your stuff crashes into each other but you don't want me designing it because i will cause it to crash into stuff <laughs> so.
0: that's fair that's fair um unlike me because i i pretend i'm an expert on everything actually i just hang out with them um yeah i mean uh you know i i was looking uh at some stuff uh Mariba Jha, had written recently, Mariba is uh, part of uh, Steve Wozniak's uh, new company that I just blanked on the name of, um, Privateer. here Yeah. Um, and they're focusing in on orbital debris, uh, which is interesting because that means he thinks there's a commercial angle there, or it wouldn't be a company rather than a not-for-profit. Um, but um, it was interesting because Mariba, who's been a champion of this for a long time, uh, wrote something. And I found myself agreeing with like everything he said in this written interview, which is very rare with anybody except myself, of course. Um, and, um, you know, uh, some of the ideas we were looking at, i you have talked about some of these. I've talked about some of them. Mariba's talked about some of them. But, um, you know, not allowing uh, random disposal of spacecraft in space. Um, uh, creating laws that would enable salvage, uh, because right now the the launching state that the company is located in or owned by um, is in charge of and responsible for that piece of hardware from launch to return to Earth or loss or whatever. Um, there's no mechanism for being able to hand that off. So you can't salvage. Um, it would seem like the laws of the sea have pretty well set that up. Uh, there'd be some things you could maybe even, I wouldn't say cut and paste, but you could move over. Um, identifying, uh, I, I one of my favorite ones, well, I'll come back to that in a second, uh, creating junkyards, which you talked about, um, where you, you don't down orbit. In other words, burn things up on earth, you move them up and store, store them. Um, and I think one that's very important, and you you had mentioned this in the beginning of your answer, that there are a lot of states that don't get along, and that would be the idea of uh, um, penalizing countries that purposefully create debris by doing an anti-satellite test or blowing something up and creating sanctions, strong sanction against those kind of companies. Um, the, um, the one about... Um, Storing things, and uh, and that I was about to mention to the idea of uh, recognizing those that are historic and protecting those. This gets into. I'm going to segue into the next one. I'm I'm curious about your opinion on. And as you know, um, I've been started starting to throw down on, um, "Thou shalt not deorbit the space station." And um, my my goal, as you know, I've participated in in space station um, stuff for a long time. I mean, at one point I wanted the International Space Station canceled, now I don't want to see it deorbited. At one point I led a team, we took over the Mir space station, we lost the battle and it got deorbited by Putin in his first iteration as head of Russia. Um, As we move into this debate, what are your thoughts on um, how we would go about setting the groundwork, creating the policies, as it were, uh, that would enable us to keep the space station up? So
1: the problem you have with keeping the space station up is that a lot of the space station companies out there or, you know, the, 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 the conglomerations that are trying to do commercial space stations, they see the space station as a threat. They see ISS as a threat. And to they've talked about like different things you could theoretically do, but all of them really don't want the space station still there because they see it as a threat to their business climate. They want NASA to commit to doing, it's kind of like, for lack of a better phrase, it's kind of like the shuttle. Until there was an end date for shuttle, it was always going to be very hard for commercial crew and commercial cargo to get off the ground. Um, We may, it's just, it, they're so diametrically in, different directions, that's the viewpoint. Now, do I think there's value in saving something like ISS? I do. I think there I think there are things you could do with it, but I think that unless and until the commercial space station companies acknowledge that, I think I think it'll get deorbited.
0: Mm-hmm. Well see I, I differentiate between ending its life and whether you deorbit it or you up orbit it to that Lagrange uh, scrapyard that you talked about, so that it could be a historical monument. I think that's the part of the conversation that's being missed.
1: The problem is they don't trust NASA because NASA their 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 viewpoint, for better or worse. At least this is my how I would characterize their viewpoint. Again, I'm not speaking for anybody but myself. Um, but my understanding and my my from my interactions with them, their attitude kind of is, is that NASA will never let go of what it currently has until something forces it. And it really has to be a strong forcing function where they can't get it back. Like, and if it's, uh, if you start talking about up orbiting it, well, we can, we can push that off and maybe we can start doing something like that. The reality I think is much more, more, much more likely is There's going to be an accident on ISS, and then we will start having a real conversation about a post-ISS world. Because I'm not convinced we're having the right conversation yet about a post-ISS world and what to do with ISS. And I don't know if that will happen until and unless there's a major accident on board ISS, which is not what I want to happen. But that's what happened with Space Shuttle
0: hmm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I uh, I understand that. I think, um, uh, and this is great. You're informing me. You give me a thought here too. Um, that we we really need to get in um, and lay out the path before we go in and start pushing for the policies. Start laying out the path that creates an end state that enables the private companies to get their stations up and rolling. Um, NASA to declare that they're done with the station. Um, and does so in a way that enables us to keep the station for future generations. I, I, I call it a universal heritage site. Um, maybe salvage parts of it. Maybe you could buy the solar panels or whatever. They're probably degraded by then, but something you know, um, you could salvage off some of it. But there's an end state that makes it clear to everybody that there will be no more human beings going to this space station at this point, And now you can start your business, right? And then we're done. So. Going to the private space companies is probably the one of the first steps, getting them to buy in. Hey, so guys, here's a path. What do you think?
1: Again, this goes back to, the, I think that you could you could come to an agreement along something like that, but there is this issue of can you trust NASA? And will, you know, there's a lot, I should stick to, there's a lot of good people and a lot of pro- space revolution people at NASA, but there's also a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of people whose attitude is, is we have this thing and I need to hold on to it as long as I can, because if I don't, I can't trust that the, if I can actually jump further back and further out there, my, my former boss and your former and and your good buddy, Jim Muncy, um, he, uh, he argues that a lot of NASA's, Neuroses, kind of, and bureaucratic learning curve can be explained by childhood trauma. Um, because if you think about it, NASA came about in the in the Apollo era. It was a real young group of people who were put together to solve the, going to the moon, and then they took it all away from them. You know, the budget was slashed. You know, th- there were all these grand plans. They have a moon base by nineteen eighty and going to Mars in nineteen ninety and all those kind of things. And all those and all those budgets got slashed to the hilt by various people or by various presidents. And there is you know, and and that just was such trauma that they always want to hold on to what they currently have. They don't want to lose what they they, they currently have because their viewpoint is is that they could lose everything. Now, that kind of thing I'm skeptical on, but that is the viewpoint. That is the worry is, as you take this away, it goes, you lose all of it.
0: No, I, I, I was just funny because it's like, if you want to see what that would have looked like, I guess you could watch for all mankind, right? Like, yeah, that, that, the, the scenario where NASA keeps going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Maybe that's the argument then why. Um, some people at NASA are pushing the, uh, what they call the gateway, the Lunar Gateway Space Station that many people wonder well, what the hell is that for? Uh, maybe it's it's a way to give them something to hang on to that they have, even as the private sector rolls in. So you like just change the sign on your desk, you know, International Space Station. Oh, okay, that's over. Now I'm working on the gateway out by the moon. Uh, my job continuity is assured.
1: And of course you have to remember also that- in in all of this is the discussion about what what the contractors are going to be doing because the contractors drive a lot of discussion as well. How much how much money is going to the various companies who are dependent upon the space station for their business model? If that goes away, do those companies go away?
0: And that that's Gateway then, right? That means they just shift contracts to Gateway. Some of, some of them
1: would, but you might not have all of them. And 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 to be fair this is an area where you and I have a little bit of disagreement. Um, But this is the issue that we have with SLS fundamentally is we, we have the space launch system and it's sole purpose is to protect existing contractors. And there were ways to address that issue of making it more commercially viable back in the day. Um, I led a, Small. I, I started a small project called Commercial Booster, and the idea was we would we would have a commercial competition for the boosters of of the SLS. So maybe you could imagine an SLS with Falcon Nine boosters on it, or Atlas Five boosters on it, or SRBs on it, and it would be a commercial. Bo- and that part of it would be purely commercial. It's not a perfect solution, obviously, because you still have a lot of the independent uh, existing contractors you're supporting with it, but it does make it more commercial. And it does support the commercial industry and everybody, you know, there's a bigger win there. Um, and you want that kind of, you want to have, if we, if we want to get to this, the, the revolution we all want, we have to have a transition st- strategy where we, we do end some of these activities in, that we currently do. Not all of them, because there's a lot of great activities that are – you're never going to have something like Hubble or the James Webb Space Telescope or the, the Pluto mission. Like I'm blanking on the name, um, but where that is not a cost-plus contract. They just – it's not viable for a variety of reasons. You can do more you – can, you can definitely do them more efficiently, and you can even you focus on – what you're trying to do in a better fashion, but you're not gonna get rid of some of, the, some of the existing structures because there's just no, there's no marketplace for, for a probe to Pluto right now. Maybe someday in a hundred years or so, but not right now. But I think there's great science that could be done and we should do that, pursue that science. So you need to have the strategy of moving away from the command and control systems for, for large portions of NASA activity.
0: Mm-hmm. So the bottom line on that then is um, inertia. You have to deal with the inertia of exactly. existing infrastructure when you're coming in with something new, because you have NASA people whose whole lives have been built around this project. You have aerospace contractors who built their business model on it. You have people who have jobs in a particular community whose whole job is adding widget Z to widget queue that builds part of the space station yep. and all of that. So it's a very complex thing. So we're taking a policy. We're saying, okay, we need to uh, put the space station up into a different place and store it and do all this. But we have these new companies coming in to build private space stations, but it's a very, very complicated path to, to make that kind of thing happen. All right. Very good. Um, I hope people are learning that the things they see and hear about in the news, and we just can't wave our hands. I mean, I'm a hand waver. I admit it. I'm a screamer. I'm a yeller. Let's go do it. Let's go do it. You're the pragmatic, the pragmatic side of things. You're the guy who has to actually make that thing happen. So, Aaron, um, moving forward, let's say you're working with Space Solar Power. What what's the uh, the, the big policy uh, thing that you want to work on? That, you know, would really get you excited next. Um, is there one that you're thinking about uh, area you'd like to focus in on? And, and by the way, anybody who's listening, who wants to support what Aaron's doing, reach out to the Space Frontier Foundation and feel free to offer um, a, uh, a donation in support of Aaron's space policy work, be very specific. So I want to support Aaron Osterle and space policy at the Space Frontier Foundation. Um, and make that donation mm-hmm. it's a, by the way, a not-for-profit charitable donation.
1: yep yeah, it's a it's a 501 three organization. So to your question, Rick what would I like to work on? That's a hard one because like I knew what it was 10 years ago. I wanted to work on commercial space stations but the battle is happening now for commercial space space stations in my mind and it's not it's moved it's moved in a direction that I'm not necessarily certain is, isn't the healthiest, um, but it is what it is. So I'm kind of like, I'm not thrilled by that, by commercial space stations anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm I want to see them. Don't get me wrong. I want to see them succeed. They need to succeed. Um, and if somebody came to me and said, Aaron, here's, here's a million dollars and go fight for commercial space stations. I do it. In, I would probably do it in a heartbeat,
0: but, Hang on just a second. Let me let me stop you for just a second. I think what you're trying to say, help me, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, is that you're about elite, you're about, you're the guy who gets out there, like I get out there, I'm I'm like uh, Will Ferrell in old school, like let's go streaking and I run down the street naked and hopefully people are following me, right? You're a very pragmatic guy, but you also engage in the leading edge and laying the foundational groundwork for what's coming and getting ahead of things. So, it's not that you don't like commercial space stations or anything. It's like you've kind of done a lot of your work there. You've done the job. The job isn't finished. I would I would say I'd
1: say one thing to to modify what you're saying. The job isn't finished, but there are aspects of where the debate is that I don't find healthy. Um for me personally and for the industry and for our species it's it's sad but there's just aspects of the debate that i think are missing key points i think i mean one of them being the space station the iss like i i think there it is a shame to lose that piece but we're going to lose that piece and probably because of you know bureaucratic dynamics and that's a shame that's that's but that's one example so, but I, I like to be on the leading edge of things and I like to find the next great debate. It's interesting. I've had a conversation with a bunch of other people what they think the next great debate is going to be and nobody's come up with it. And so I'm kind of like looking around for it. I, I think a big part of it has to be how does, how does space address issues that are fundamental to individual human beings? You know how does space become important to you know the average person, and 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 that's a little bit that's a little bit hand wavy, and I don't like that answer, but it's there's this attitude of of we see space like the Mona Lisa, where space is this thing that we do, and it's great for all nations, and sometimes really rich people do it, but the average person just kind of watches it, and it's cool. I want more than that for the average person. I want the average person to say, not only is that cool, I can do it. I can be a part of it. I can, you know, form a business. I can go and paint stuff in space. I can be touched by it in a way that is inspirational. I can be part of the story of space. Um and and that that's what drives me and that and finding that kind of thing. That's kind of why I latched on to the idea of space, solar power and climate change, because I see climate change as one of the quintessential issues we face. And if this is an, if this is, an, if this is an opportunity to address that issue for the average person, that's not a bad thing.
0: It isn't, it isn't at all. At another point and another time, I want to, I want to talk to you about the work that we did years ago, a couple of times actually, but especially in 2014, 2015 on what we called the Space Settlement Act and and um, the pioneering space summit where we brought these people together to get them to agree to put the, the word settlement into the authorization or the, the top level guiding policy for NASA. Um, I'm, I'm coming back around to that idea because I think we were able to help change the conversation. There was a whole flurry of uh citizens living in space type legislation, including asteroid stuff and resource stuff and all that, that followed uh, right after, I mean, within the year of that happening. Um, But I still believe the idea that um, at the very top, without that being the the guiding policy of NASA to enable, and by the way, I'm not using the word settlement. I'm, I'm trying to not use it as much, but the establishment of human communities beyond Earth, it's a little more ponderous, but a little more politically correct nowadays um, that until that is in there in terms of what human space flight is for government funded human space flight is for or supports the idea of enabling the development of human communities beyond the earth. We're always going to be picking around the edges and trying to torque this and torque that. What what do you think about that?
1: This is a fundamental issue that you see in, government policymakers I've had well I haven't but one of one of our mutual friends has had a discussion with a government uh official on the issue of space settlement and you know beyond earth communities and his the question he got asked was well what program would you have us do and his response our friend's response was this isn't about a pr- specific program. This is about a mindset and a, and a, and, a, and an approach of doing business differently. And therefore don't think of it as asking for a specific program. Think of it as how it informs your existing programs and your future programs, whether it's going to Mars, whether it's building a space telescope, whether it's whatever.
0: I think that's perfect. Um, Yeah, and it gets down to some of the things that I'm working on with the Earth Light Foundation and, and the book that I hope to get out at some point where everything that NASA would do, let's say NASA or the government or Space Force, whatever would do, if that were the policy, that the government's human space program activities should support the development of human communities beyond the Earth, then you would look at everything they do and say, well, how does this help? You know, is this, how do we turn this from spending on a program to an investment in creating American-led human space communities? And that means, going back to what we were talking about, salvage rights, you know, when you're in, when you're done with something, you can hand it over, um, you know, developing things that are reusable, bringing the private sector in wherever you can, all of these different things. So I think you're exactly right. It's not a program. It's how you approach all programs. So at some point, we can have a a much uh, deeper conversation on that. I I need to get into some very, very serious topics now, because we're getting near the end of the show, and kind of traditional thing I like to do here. And uh, so, uh, and and definitely, I'm going to have to have you back. Uh, We're just touching the surface here uh, of of so many different things we could dive into. And I hope uh, the audience is uh, interested and excited about what they're hearing. And if you are, let us know. Um, you can follow me by the way at, at Rocket Rick. Um, and um, Aaron doesn't do very much social media. that's because he's getting s done. But um, sir so Aaron, a uh, very important topic're you're, you're, you're out flying around uh, let's call it you're flying around Mars. Mm, several tens of thousands of kilometers an hour. you can see the surface moving below you. It's very, very immediate to you. What would you be listening to?
1: So I have a story to tell cause, uh, that I think you'll appreciate on this. Back when I was in, in high school, we had to do one of our projects, don't ask me why, was to create a travel brochure or something commercial, whatever you wanted to do. But you had to create some sort of travel kit. About, about why you're visiting a certain planet. And we got Mars. And we created a commercial for going to Mars. And we we uh, we had a, we borrowed images from Buzz Aldrin's uh, Mars Cycler and the space station and different things like that. And this is in the 90s before we had the space station. And images of the X-33 and the Venture Star. I'm sure you remember those. And we had a whole thing about going to Mars, and we set it to the music of of um, Babylon Five trailer music for uh, uh, Judge Dredd, and I think we also used a little bit of the uh, of the planets, specifically the Mars one. Um, the I can't think of who. Oh, who created that, that, that symphony, but the, the Planet Symphony that that's been done, that was done many years ago. I would probably be listening to weird trailer music because that's what I, or, or weird, uh, weird, you know, that kind of music because that's what I listen to a lot. Um, that or
0: weird pop. Okay. Okay. I love it. I love it. What's your favorite science fiction movie? I'm not a movie person, actually.
1: I mean, I guess I would have to say Star Wars, but I'm more of a TV person. Um so
0: or show yeah you know, tell me your show what's your favorite show
1: My two favorite shows are Babylon 5 and Farscape. Um I loved the realism and the storytelling of Babylon 5 and the world building it did and I loved the weirdness of Farscape. They just they they had so many new ideas in Farscape that were hadn't been touched and it was just beautifully done. A
0: lot of weird characters and uh that's a that's, that's a Wayback machine show. You should uh, look that up if you haven't heard of it. Farscape. Um, very, very cool. Favorite book? Fiction.
1: Uh, Foundation series. I, I love the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. Mm-hmm.
0: And as you know, the Space Frontier Foundation was partially named in honor of that series. And Isaac knew, and he liked it. Of course, the joke was, and those of you who read the Foundation series will know this a little inside thing here, Where's the second foundation? Anyway, so what about nonfiction? There's only one answer. I'm going to tell you what it is. It's the
1: high frontier. I was going to say it was your book, isn't it?
0: Oh, the book I haven't written. Oh, my God. You're going for points, my friend. All right. I owe you points on that one. Um, Beyond the high frontier, which is obvious for us, um, and I'm not putting words in your mouth there. I know it is obvious. It's the Bible for a lot of us. What would would another non Well, the
1: great irony is I'd never finished The High Frontier.
0: Wow. And yet you operate in a world of it. I do, but I've never
1: finished it. I started it many times, and I just never finished it. It's one of those things of, like, something comes up or whatever, but I've never finished it.
0: That's almost as good as when I asked somebody what their favorite music was, and they said, silence. Right? (laughs) Okay. And you can buy that uh, where um, you can download it on the Apple. Um, no, very, very cool, man. And last, last point, somebody listening who wants to get into this field, who cares about it, who um, wants to make something happen somewhere in the world, maybe not just here in the United States, but somewhere in the world, maybe there's somebody in the Philippines listening or, uh, you know, somewhere else who wants to get involved. How, what would you say to them? how do you do it
1: start by learning how your government works number one you know know how the powers of the levers of power are are pushed and pulled and turned and whatnot that's what number one, one number two start learning about how you know the idea of this intermixion of 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 commerce and regulation and technology happen in a in, a, in an interesting way because I the reality is is I did not learn space policy by going to school I learned it in the sticks I was a I had about ten years where I was trying to do my undergrad work and I had family issues and personal issues that came up and I just it took ten years and it is what it is I don't make a big deal out of it. But in that time, I learned space policy because you had the world of the blogosphere come online and you had people posting their thoughts on issues of orbital debris and space station and space shuttle and the end of space shuttle and all those kind of things. And I just started reading those kind of things. So learn how your government works. Learn how how civics works. Learn how you want the government to work. And then... Start thinking about these issues of how how they interconnect with each other and how the the interplay is with each other. That is, and that's vital. And start reading about about those kind of things. Whether it's you know policy books or I'm going to give a plug for Lori Garver's new book. Um, uh, you know, read her book. Read you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of good. Things like that out there that you can you can avail yourself of, but learn how the learn how your government works, and then start developing how you want it to work.
0: Fantastic! Well, you're certainly a guy who has learned how it works, and you work it very very well, my friend. Want to thank Aaron Osterly for uh, being our guest today. Um, Like I said, we're going to have you back. We're going to play around with some of these different topics. I think we had a list of like nine, and we did three. Um, So there's so much to talk about and uh, hopefully uh, our spacer team out there has has learned something i'm uh glad to have you anytime and uh i hope
1: uh it's an honor and a pleasure rick
0: oh man i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to send you a check um so Aaron Osterley, thank you spacers thank you you've been listening to the space revolution my name is rick tomlinson we are here on iRock Space Radio. We're part of the iHeart Radio Network. And uh, yeah, come back around. Come back around next time the orbit brings you here. And I am out of the airlock. You've been listening to the Space Revolution
1: Podcast with Rick Tumlinson, a production of iRock Space Radio. Go to iRockSpaceRadio.com for more.